Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is probably the biggest Buffy the Vampire Slayer in uh, this part of the world. That's uh, Kaylee Byers. How's it going, Kaylee? Oh, really great, thanks. I'm so flattered. I'm I'm definitely not a Buffy. I would be fortunate to be a Willow and a true inspiration to my heart, but I, I don't know if I'd quite be a Buffy. Where would you be? Have you even gotten past like the first two to three episodes? Well, I mean, I was a little taken aback when uh, Angel was revealed uh, to be a vampire, and uh, which of course is like in the first few episodes. <laughs> so I'm way behind, but I will catch up. I promise. Well, we'll have to remedy that. So today we are joined by Dr. David Schiffman and. And you actually may know Dr. Shipman from his social media persona as Why Sharks Matter. And as you might guess from that handle, David's a marine biologist who studies sharks. But David also studies the intersection of science and environmental policy. So today we're going to be talking about sharks and conservation and policy. So hi, David. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so excited for you to be here. So maybe start us off and tell us a little bit about, do you remember when you first started getting interested in sharks, where that interest came from? Uh, well, I, I've loved sharks. My parents say have been obsessed with sharks as long as anyone in my family can remember. But I grew up in Pittsburgh, pretty far from the ocean. But even even so, this is, I've known that this is what I wanted to do basically my whole life. And my parents have always been very supportive, though I think they always thought I would grow out of this eventually, and I never did. But uh, there's, no, there's no specific moment. It just sort of has always been there. What is it, do you think, about sharks that you find so compelling? I think that sharks are a, a fascinating group of animals. Every time I see one, I still get excited as excited as I did the first time I did when I was a kid seeing them at the shark tank at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Uh, and I've seen thousands of sharks now at this point. I've seen, uh, uh, since I've started keeping track, I've seen 54 species. Uh, and I've every time I'm excited to see them. But they're powerful. They're monsters of myth and legend. They're culturally significant animals. And I've learned uh, years into being obsessed with sharks that they're also very, very important to a healthy functioning coastal ecosystem and that many species are in trouble. So that's when I shifted from sharks are cool to marine conservation biology, focusing on this intersection of science and policy, trying to protect threatened species. So you mentioned having seen 54 species. Uh, I'm curious, do you know how many species there are and then how many of them are actually threatened? Uh, so there are, according to the latest edition of Sharks of the World, which is coming out soon, but I've gotten the official press release materials, there Ooh. are 551 recognized species of sharks, but there are more discovered all the time. In fact, a new species of shark or shark relative has been discovered on average every two weeks for the past decade or so. Uh, so there are a lot. And according to the, the latest public statistics, the newer statistics aren't out yet, but they're worse than this. Uh, but I can't say more than that yet. 24% of all known species of sharks and their relatives are considered threatened with extinction by the IUCN Red List, which is an international group of scientific experts. So one out of every four uh, are vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. And I can't remember the last time one got what's called downlisted, which is it's now considered to be in better shape than it was the last time we did it. Uh, but all the time they get uplisted, which is, it's worse. When it comes to con conservation with some of these sharks that are slowly going extinct, what are some of the main issues? Is it all just hunting? So Oh, unsustainable overfishing of sharks is the issue. There, There is nothing that's an even close number two. It's humans killing too many of them for meat, for fins, uh, accidentally as bycatch, uh, which means they're trying to catch something else and they accidentally catch sharks that are near them. There, There's nothing that's a close number two. Climate change, 
is a, a threat to a lot of ocean species, not a major threat to sharks. Plastic pollution is a major threat to many ocean species, not really a big threat to sharks. Unsustainable overfishing is by far the, the top one. And the solutions have to do with creating zones of the ocean where fishing is restricted or not allowed, either with certain gears or certain times of year or at all, or making fishing quotas that are smaller. Some species need to be protected from fishing entirely. Sometimes it's it's uh, something as simple as gear restrictions we have to do. So the solutions can be a bit technical and dry, but in general, humans are killing too many of them. We need to be killing fewer, and there's a bunch of ways to do that. So I believe you're the um, one of the top shark Twitter people out there. What are some of the public misconceptions or what are uh, a lot of the questions that you're getting asked from the public when it comes to shark conservation? Uh, so I do an Ask Me Anything session on Twitter every week. I've done one every week for an hour for the last five or six years. During this uh, quarantine time, I've been doing them over video chat, alternating between Facebook and Twitter, but I usually just do them on Twitter. Uh, and so I've answered thousands of people's questions about this and also just sort of monitor public perception. And it used to be that the big misconception that people had about sharks is that sharks are bloodthirsty killers, and if you dip your toe in the bathtub, a shark's going to eat your whole family. That's really just not the case. There's never been a fatal shark bite in Canadian waters. So there are, there are let me tell you, a lot of sharks in Canada. Uh, things that kill more people than sharks in a typical year are flower pots falling on people's head from above when you walk down the street. And I've been watching some of my neighbors during this quarantine poorly set up uh, herb gardens in their balcony. So that number's about to go up. Vending machines kill way more people than sharks. Uh, more people are killed falling off cliffs while not paying attention and taking selfies than are killed by sharks. So this is a really overblown fear in many cases by irresponsible media coverage. Uh, one of my favorite analyses of this was done by my, my friend Christopher Neff, uh, he looked at coverage of shark attacks. I'm doing sarcastic air quotes for the audio uh, folks. Uh, shark attacks, uh, in as reported in Australian media. And when you hear shark attack, you think Jaws. You think there's a malicious monster stalking the coast and killing and eating people because it's because it's bad. In 38% of reported shark attacks in Australia, the shark did not physically touch the human at all. It swam near them and startled them, and it was reported as a shark attack. Yeah, I was going to ask if they just swam by and flipped them off or something, you know, just like a little <laughs> yeah. aggressive behavior. <laughs> so, yeah. so that used to be the big myth, and now the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, and we have these, again, sarcastic air quote, influencers who are saying that actually sharks are cute and adorable, innocent, ador uh, innocent puppy dogs, and they just need hugs and kisses, and they literally try to hug and kiss wild predators that can bite dolphins in half and try to ride them and try to flip them over to get a picture of them falling because when you flip a shark over they fall asleep uh it is the bane of my existence there is a happy medium between sharks are bloodthirsty killers and sharks are adorable puppy dogs and that is how we treat other wildlife now david you mentioned um you mentioned jaws and i can imagine you know this movie being one of the biggest movies action movies out there especially about sharks as well probably has a huge influence and has had a huge influence probably on you being interested in sharks. So as a whole, do you think if we just talk about that movie in particular, has that movie benefited shark conservation or has it been bad? Certainly in the 80s and 90s, Jaws was demonstrably bad for sharks. And Jaws, incidentally, this is the 45th anniversary of Jaws, so it's been out a long time. And Jaws truly changed the world in a lot of ways, not just for sharks. It was the first summer blockbuster. 
there's actually something in the in the public policy literature called the Jaws effect, uh, which is when there's some sort of disaster, which can be a shark but doesn't have to be, locally local elected officials want to be seen as doing something, even if what they're doing doesn't help or makes the problem worse, because they don't want to be seen as the mayor from Jaws who kept the beaches open when the sharks were there. So this absolutely terrified people about sharks. People didn't really think about sharks very much before Jaws. My parents, they're very bright people, but they both independently told me they didn't know each other yet when Jaws came out, that when Jaws came out, they were afraid to go swimming in the pools in their community for that whole summer. And people around the world, when I tell you to picture a shark, you picture Jaws. And there's only one other movie that's had that kind of impact on how we visualize something, and that's Jurassic Park. Uh, So, yeah, Jaws absolutely terrified a generation and inspired people to proactively go out and kill sharks. But it also, it was the first time a marine biologist was the star of a movie, Richard Dreyfuss's character. And that inspired a generation of the, the people slightly ahead of me in their careers. So it's, Jaws has really had a mixed bag. I wrote about this for Gizmodo for the 40th anniversary. That was a lot of fun. Um, I, guess what, I guess what my question would be then, let's say Moby Dick was the movie instead of Jaws. Would sperm whales, would they be more endangered now? Is, like, is there a correlation there that you're able to see like when Moby Dick was first written, like did people go out and start hunting sperm whales more? Were sharks more prevalent before Jaws came out? So it's, it's a little different because uh, Moby Dick was about an existing whaling industry, that they weren't kept being hunted because they're scary, but because of the whale oil and whale blubber. But yeah, people were definitely afraid of whales. And that's based on, a, like part of that is based on a real story. There's a movie that was made about the real story that inspired Moby Dick called In the Heart of the Sea. It's tricky because the the peak of industrial overfishing of sharks did start in the 1980s, shortly after Jaws, but not because of that. So definitely Jaws inspired people to go out and kill a bunch of sharks, but that's not what's happening with their populations. It's the the commercial fisheries. Can we talk a little bit about what the implications are of this overfishing and the loss of biodiversity of sharks? Like you were talking about they're, they're pivotal to marine ecosystems. So what will our oceans look like if we have fewer sharks? What are the repercussions of that? So predators are always important for keeping the food chain in balance. Where I'm from uh, in Pittsburgh, a hundred years ago, there were wolves. We got rid of the wolves because who wants wolves in your backyard? Wolves are scary. And now there's too many deer and there's not enough food for the deer or space for the deer in the forest. So the deer leave the forest and they cause billions of dollars of property damage a year and they spread Lyme disease to humans. So uh, that's what's called predation release. When you lose a top predator, prey populations grow out of control with nothing to keep them in balance anymore. And then if that ripples through the food web further, that's called a trophic cascade. And the, the classic example of this is off the West Coast of North America with Sea, sea otters and urchins and kelp forests. And you can picture these kelp forests are these beautiful, vibrant ecosystems, three-dimensional habitat of these giant, these giant seaweeds. Uh, they're attached to the bottom only by a tiny little part, and sea urchins eat that part, and then that destroys the kelp. Sea otters keep sea urchin populations in check. You see them on their back adorably crushing sea urchins with rocks. And when you lose the sea otters, sea urchin populations grow out of control. And then they eat all the kelp, and then the kelp forest, which was habitat for hundreds of species, is gone. Even though the sea otters don't eat kelp, the loss of sea otters affected the kelp. 
So the short answer here is that uh, food chains are really, really complicated, and every time we mess with them, it's bad, usually in ways we can't predict. And you even had a piece recently, uh, I made a joke with peace, <laughs> um, because it was all about urine, yep. <laughs> urine and fish and, and the ecosystems. And so there's even this consequence of losing animals and the nutrients that they provide. Yeah. So fish pee is actually really important to a healthy functioning ecosystem, A lot, particularly uh, places like coral reefs. Fish may hang out there during the day and then they go out and feed at night. So they get nutrients somewhere else and then they bring them back to the reef in the form of waste when they're hanging out during the day. Uh, and that article was about my, my favorite new scientific phrase, which is super urinators. <laughs> so with any, with any population of any animal, there's variation in every trait. Some of us are taller than others. Some of us have more hair than others. Uh, some of us can jump higher than others, whatever. One of those things is how much you pee. And there are fish that are super urinators that removing those super urinators from the population has a more of an impact on uh, the nutrient flow in that population than moving 50 or 100 fish that are not super urinators. And the thing is, you can't tell by looking at them. So every marine conservation study can be basically summarized as the, the effects of removing something are a lot worse than we thought and totally unpredictable. So maybe don't kill as many things. All right, let's get to some audience questions. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? What is like carbon it's based? The fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. Shout out to uh, my friend Kyle, who uh, did that little music interlude for us. Friend of the podcast, Kyle. Uh, our first question comes from Ashley, who asks, I read somewhere that if sharks stop moving, they die. Is that true? So sharks, it's true. The short answer is it's true sometimes. There are, again, there's a huge diversity of shark species. They come in every shape and size and color you can imagine. They have a huge range of behaviors, a huge range of physiologies. But for some of them, yes, that's true. Sharks need to be swimming in order to breathe. It pumps water over their gills and they extract the oxygen from that water. And if they're not moving forward or if there's not a strong current, not enough water passes over their gills. And the, there are some species that can sit on the bottom, uh, but other, there are lots of species of sharks that are swimming constantly their whole lives, which means they don't ever sleep. So they're kind of like, they're kind of like speed, uh, you know, like they just have to keep going. Yeah. Can't ever go below 50 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of why if they're caught in fishing gear, why they die so fast is they they can't breathe. Oh, wow. Even if they're not there very long or so they, they suffocate in discomfort. So, sorry, that, that takes me on a side question, I think. What are what are better fishing practices for sharks, considering that that can be a devastating way for them to die? So bycatch, this idea that if you're fishing for something and you accidentally catch something else near it, is a solvable problem. And sometimes the solution is technology. Uh, can be different fishing gear that we are, your goal is to catch the tuna and the swordfish and not catch the sharks and the sea turtles or the seabirds. So sometimes it's just using a different hook that can still get caught uh, in a swordfish or a tuna's jaw, but not in a seabird's. Sometimes it's using different bait that tuna like, but sharks don't. Uh, sharks have the ability to sense electric fields. So there are hooks made out of rare earth uh, metal magnets that make an electric field. Tunas can't sense that, so they just go for the bait. And sharks are theoretically repelled by it, although some are attracted to it. So no solution is super easy. That's amazing. What a diversity of things you can do in that that electromagnetic field. Is that what you said? It's wild. Yeah. So sharks, um, if, if there's 
something, uh, a prey animal that's hiding under the sand where you can't see it or hear it or smell it, sharks still know it's there because they can sense the electricity of its beating heart. Oh. Next question comes from Kim who asks, do sharks have a social system or are they the lone wolf of the ocean? So again, lots of different species of sharks are out there. Many species of sharks are solitary uh, except when they come together to mate. Some do have uh, schooling behavior. Spiny dogfish uh, are uh, the animal that I came to British Columbia to study. Uh, and the fishermen that we spoke to said, you never catch one spiny dogfish. Uh, if you, they use these, the fishing gear they use has thousands of baited hooks on it. And they say they're, they're going to catch zero spiny dogfish or they're going to catch 800 or 1,000 spiny dogfish because they, they move in. The fishermen call them swarms. There are also uh, those epic photos of, of hammerhead schools in the Galapagos. They come together. Uh, they're not there all the time. It's only part of the year. So some animals do have social uh, systems. There are also, so there's been some really cool work done with juvenile lemon sharks in the Bahamas. And babies that grow up in the same estuary will have uh, friends and they'll have enemies. They'll have individuals that they associate with more than you'd expect by random chance and individuals they dissociate with less than you'd expect by random chance. Uh, that Sharks also have what's called social learning which means they can watch another member of their species do something and then they know how to do it, which is something that you don't usually think of fish being able to do. So social stuff is, is, tends to be correlated with brain size. And so a question I get related to this a lot is how smart are sharks? And there's this old cliche that's on, like probably every school in the world has a poster with this on it somewhere that says, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'll think it's stupid. Uh, <laughs> There are, I mean, sharks are not going to compose a symphony anytime soon, but if you plot all of the animals that we know this for, their body mass on one axis and their brain mass on the other axis and draw a line through the middle of average, sharks have a bigger brain than you'd expect for their body size. Uh, humans are right about on that line. So that doesn't mean that sharks are capable of like advanced problem solving, though some can do simple problem solving, but they're a lot smarter than most people think. And they do have uh, some social hierarchies. Which shark has the biggest brain? The, so the manta ray has the biggest brain of any fish. Uh, they are actually capable of recognizing themselves in the mirror. What? Bananas. I can barely do that. Yeah. These days I don't recognize myself in the mirror, <laughs> but yeah, manta rays have the biggest brain of any fish. Uh, which shark does, I would assume would be the whale shark, which is the biggest fish of anything. Uh, but it's still smaller than a manta ray's ring. So you mentioned that uh, they don't really maybe have social systems in a lot of cases unless they're like coming together to mate. So what is shark sex like? So shark sex is extraordinarily violent. Animals like a salmon or a tuna, they spawn. They have external fertilization. They release clouds of sperm and eggs into the water and they fertilize and make little baby fish, which are plankton. And then they grow up to be adult fish. Sharks don't do that. They have internal fertilization. They have external genitalia. Uh, if you look at a, uh, you can tell, uh, if you saw shark mating, you'd recognize what you were looking at. Except male sharks have two uh, genitals and they use whichever one's closer to the female. The, the reason why shark sex is so violent is because in order to be near the female enough to mate, they need to hold her still because they're in a three-dimensional environment. So they're not against the, against the seafloor or anything. Uh, so they bite really hard. And so shark uh, females have skin that's about twice as thick as shark males in many species because of this. And we see, we've encountered sharks that just have like horrifying scars all over them. And 
but that's just normal day-to-day life for them. It's mating scars. Uh, shark, where baby sharks come from is uh, actually kind of an interesting story. It's a lot more diverse than most groups of animals. Some sharks lay eggs. Some sharks give live births just like mammals. Some sharks have a weird mix of that that's only found in sharks, uh, where the, it, the eggs hatch inside the mom and then are born as if live birth. Some sharks are capable of parthenogenesis, which is self-cloning. If there's not a suitable male around, a female never will is. just become pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the female will just become pregnant. And instead of the babies being a mix of a mom and the dad, they're exact genetic copies of the mom. Sharks also have what's called multiple paternity. So this during this violent mating period, the female might mate with multiple males. And she will become pregnant with several of them simultaneously and give birth to a litter of half-siblings. There are also some female sharks, if they might mate and say, you know what, now is not really a great time for me to get pregnant. And they can store the sperm for up to four years and then become pregnant when the conditions are right. But shark sex, there's a lot of videos of this on YouTube. I have a blog post summarizing it with some diagrams and videos of that are my favorites. The blog post is called Fifty Shades of Grey Reef Shark. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's shocking. I have so many questions about like how much sperm can be stored for four years and like if it degrades over time. And I, <laughs> I just don't. Apparently not enough. To, the pregnancy doesn't work. The babies were normal. That was in an aquarium. Uh, All right. Last uh, audience question comes from Elizabeth who asks, what's the best shark? What's the best shark? I encourage everyone to follow hashtag best shark on uh, Twitter and Instagram to see years of me talking about my favorite shark, the sandbar shark. I love sandbar sharks. And this actually came in handy recently. I was asked to do a, a national public radio in Phoenix, Arizona interview about sandbar sharks because the aquarium there just had baby sandbar sharks born and they googled sandbar sharks and i'm apparently the only person in the world who's excited by them (laughs) but they were my master's research study animal which means they're not the first shark i ever saw but they are the first shark i ever saw a lot of also they are for millions of children around the world they are the first shark you'd ever see because they're a really really common aquarium species and they do well in captivity so they're, they're, they're just a basic model shark. They don't have a fancy head or a fancy tail or stripes or spots or whatever. But they, they, uh, they punch above their weight in terms of public outreach because they're so common in aquariums. That's, that's great to hear your reasons behind it because I was always wondering, like, why not Greenland sharks? Because <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> Greenland sharks are cool. I do like Greenland sharks. Uh, Chrissy Teigen just retweeted uh, me talking about Greenland sharks this past week, and it ruined my Twitter mentions for like a day. But yeah, Greenland sharks are cool, but they're not the best shark. Uh, but they can be so old, and they can eat polar bears. Yeah, Greenland sharks can live to be over 400 years old. They're the longest lived animal in the world, vertebrate animal, and they eat reindeer and, and polar bears. Pretty cool. But yeah, they're, they're maybe the coolest shark. I do like Greenland sharks, but they're not the best shark. All right, should we do a segment? Bring on that segment. What you about. What you about. All right, we'll start with you, David. What are you nerding about? What am I nerding about lately? So there is a new video game that is being released soon. Uh, which is a first-person RPG, massive multiplayer online RPG from the perspective of a shark. And it is called Maneater. And the the YouTube videos for this are incredible. So you can just destroy the world. There used to be a Sega Genesis game where you could do this, but this is like that with better graphics. 
I can't wait for this. I'm going to spend, I'm going to just take like a week off work and just sit on the couch and just be destroying the world as a shark. Uh, I have been tr- relentlessly trying to get in touch with the company to see if they need an, a, a spoke shark scientist for the game uh, <laughs> and thus far have not had success. Yeah, I can't wait. Man eater. Check it out. I'm already playing Cat Quest, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll ramp up to that later. Nice. <laughs> Michael? What are you nerding about? So the other day, I rewatched Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And uh, I'm not a big Marvel guy, but this one's one of the better Marvel movies. And I have a few thoughts. First, Steve Rogers, I think, is probably the dorkiest of all of the Avengers. And here's why. He's, before he becomes Captain America... He's just a dorky kid. He's just a scrawny, skinny kid. Um, he gets enlisted in the army, but everyone did back in the th- back in the 30s. And then, of course, he becomes Captain America, beats up the Nazis, then gets frozen, and then you know comes out uh, in 2016 or 2015, whenever the MC- new MC- MCU movie comes out. But the thing is that culturally, he has no context for anything that's cool in the world. And there's a really funny thread line in the movie where people keep telling him uh, referencing things, but he doesn't get the reference. So if somebody says like like a reference to like, oh, well, like the band Nirvana, he's like, uh, who are they? And then he brings out this little notebook and he just has like this notebook of things to like check off because you know who makes lists? Nerds make lists. Nerds yeah. make lists. And Steve Rogers, uh, I've slowly come to realize, uh, is probably the nerdiest of the Avengers. And I think he's really neat, which then led me to uh, uh, myself because I love making lists. There's a museum scene that's really integral in the movie. And as a project for my little quarantine project, I'm going to start making a database of all the movies that have integral museum scenes in them. So if anyone out there uh, knows of good museum scenes and movies, send them to me. I'm making a database. Kaylee, what are you nerding about? Oh, well, it's actually been forever and a day since I read a book. Uh, When you are writing your thesis, you spend a lot of time reading academic papers, and I really haven't felt like I've had much of a bandwidth to read anything else lately. And so I just submitted my thesis for external examination last week and immediately decided to read a book. And so I picked one that I have been wanting to read for ages, which is uh, Ted Chang's Exhalation. And it was released last year. It's a series of sci-fi short stories It is stunning. I enjoyed every moment of it. I read it all in one day. Uh, It answers or, or goes into these questions around what is consciousness? Do we have free will? what is memory? What is the value of memory? And and as it fades, is is that valuable? And there was one story in particular, I I won't spoil it, but it was all about the, the potential of sort of digital pets and owning digital pets. And it reminded me of Gigapets. Do you remember Gigapets? Mm-hmm. You used to play yep. Gigapets. And then later on, Neopets. Did any of you have Neopets online? I had this one, which I went online and I fed every single day and I was obsessed with like buying things for. And it, it sort of talks about, you know, what what would digital pets look like and what would animal welfare look like in, in that respect? And just sort of these this really beautiful story about a future where that's a possibility. I absolutely loved it. So if anyone's looking for a read, that's a good one. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for bringing more robots into our lives. Robot pets, <laughs> uh, as soon as they're on the market, I'm going to get a robot cat. <laughs> uh, well, David, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast you are on social media where can people find you uh, on the in the on twitter.com yeah I am on Twitter Facebook and Instagram at why sharks matter and I am always happy to answer any questions anyone has about sharks I should also note that throughout this this quarantine period I have been zooming into people's living rooms 
Uh, I've talked to thousands of kids about sharks, and I'm available to do that for you, for uh, anyone listening at home. Uh, and if any teachers are still meeting virtually with their students, I'm happy to hop on a call uh, and talk about marine biology. And yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. It was so fun to get to chat with you more about your work. And if you like this podcast, you can follow us at Nerd Night YVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, just keep swimming. 